Today I'm speaking with Chris Long. Chris was brought up in the remote Gorge River in South Westland, two days' walk from the closest civilization. Since leaving home, he's lived an amazing life, adventuring all over the world from Antarctica to Norway, and has recorded his travels on his YouTube channel, Wild Kiwi Adventurer. I hope you enjoyed this discussion, and if you did, please take the time to like and subscribe to the channel. It makes a huge difference. Thanks. Did you ever think when uh, you were growing up as a kid down in Gorge River, so isolated that you would end up doing all these amazing experiences that you've that you're now doing or did you think you were going to live there forever i had no idea really what my future was going to be um and it, even to this day i still kind of live with that same philosophy of you know, never rule anything out and i would never think of something but oh, i won't do that um and i think i've always had that so when i was a child i would have looked at different people and met different people doing different things. Uh, many of our visitors, you know, would turn up in aircraft and at Gorge River and many of them from all over the globe sometimes. And so I probably looked at a lot of people and seen a lot of people and, yeah, I guess I knew that maybe one day I would be one of them, but I never knew. I never knew what it was going to be like to actually leave home until I did leave home. Yeah, and and you wrote in your book about leaving home quite a bit and it seemed like a traumatic event, probably more so for you coming from such an isolated place for the you know than the rest of us. But um, I, I wonder if because you your childhood was so isolated that you know what you're doing now, way more extreme than most of us is almost like a rebound effect or something <laughs> or is it is obviously just what you love doing but yeah what i do these days is just a continuation of it um of your childhood you yeah mean. exactly so say um and we'll talk a, a, a little bit today about like going down to antarctica or up into nor into the arctic of norway and those sort of things you're just kind of going to a it's a very different environment, but in some ways it's it's a place which is just a bit more wild and a bit further north or south or whatever it is, a bit darker, a bit windier, a bit colder than at home at Gorge River. Uh, but that growing up at Gorge River gave me a, a very good kind of um, base level of skills and and I felt comfortable in that environment mm. um, you know, in, in the, kind of the, the wildest corner of, of New Zealand, if you like. Um, so that way it was an awesome stepping stone just to kind of once I was comfortable with the world then just go and push the limits and, and there was really nothing holding me back once I'd learnt the ways of the modern world then you can combine the two you can take the modern world um, and everything it's got to offer but then also go and explore these other places where um, where few people kind of have the urge to to go everyone thinks that uh, it's a cool idea to go to Antarctica or or something but Few people actually want to go and work there and live there and, yeah. and well, make that I, I think I think maybe a lot do, but most of us don't get round to doing the things we want to do because we're just, you know, stuck in this sort of normal life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I see this every day and I really, uh, I've had so many conversations with people over time and it's, it's one of my um, little projects is you know, spark, make that little spark inside someone yeah. Um, light and sometimes like I'll I'll mention something I'll be like hey you know you could go and do this job might be something which I could suggest that they do 
and then they're like, oh yeah, that's that's a cool idea. And then the next day they come back and they're like, tell me more about that job. And then you know that you've kind of sparked that in them and that's the amazing feeling. It's the same as taking someone there and they have that spark when they get there like, wow, that's an amazing place. Whether it be uh, West Coast of New Zealand or Antarctica, it doesn't really matter where it is. And it's the same if you inspire someone and maybe you see on social media or something a year later like, ah, oh, they made it, you know. Mm. That's, yeah, that's cool. That's quite cool to to have that kind of um, a little bit of it's, planting that seed. It's not power, but you're you're um, sort of spawning an idea in people's minds that might not have otherwise been there, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes um, sometimes it's it's not as hard as people think to do things. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. But um, often, like if you really dream of something and you really want it enough, you will make it happen. People are pretty good at making things happen. Um, but only if you're giving it everything, you know. If, I've never kind of held back. Um, like if if I have a thought, I say, um, I go back from Antarctica and then I, was, I thought, hey, I want to go to the north. I want to go as far north as I can in the world. Um, really, like that was as casual as I was thinking about it. And then I thought, oh, I know this guy who worked up there somewhere. Um, contacted him. He said, yep, this is the number. Um, or, or email address or whatever to to email to these people up in Tromso at the very north of Norway. I thought that was the world's northernmost city at the time. Um, so I got in contact with them and, and um, lo and behold, I did manage to secure a position up there. It's, it's not a particularly hard place to get a job um, if you've got a little bit of outdoor experience. I'd never worked with dogs before, but yet I was applying for a, a job worth working with um, 350 husky dogs. Yeah. Um, but you take in some relevant skills in some other areas and then you learn about the dogs. Um, it wasn't until I got there that then I realized it wasn't the northernmost city in the world. And um, the northernmost one is Svalbard, um, Longyearbyen, which is about 800 kilometers further north, I think. And that's my next destination. <laughs> Were you disappointed when you got there that you weren't at the top? Not overly, but I, I remember sitting down thinking, oh, I knew about that place, but why didn't I apply there? But that was fine anyway. What Living did, in Tromso was amazing. What experience. you did looked incredibly cool, and and we're gonna um, talk about that. So you've you've written about a lot of this in your book, and I was just saying before, um, I really enjoyed it. So I got the Thank Kindle you. version. Um, it was great, very easy read, and you know quite inspiring. A lot of it, and um, I'd like to read a few paragraphs of that during this interview, if we could, just so people who are watching or listening can get a bit of a feel for it. Absolutely, yep. I'll see if I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was it like writing the book? To me, the idea of writing a book is, you know, such a huge project, sort of like a an ultra marathon run or learning a new language or something. It's just like, it's never going to end, you know. Was it, was it like that for you or was it easy? The process of writing... Um, for me, it wasn't probably as hard as for some. As I had watched mum and dad go through the same process. Yeah. Both of them published autobiographies around um, 2010, 2012. And that was just shortly after I'd left home. And I think I was at home actually when dad was writing his one. He was writing it all um, with pen and paper. And then mum would type that out on our laptop, which we'd just got. This was the first computer that we'd ever had at home. Um, just in the last year that I lived there. 
and then so that kind of went away and went through that process and it it, it came out and was um very successful and then mum so mum's followed i figured that one day they would probably contact me or someone would contact me and be like hey do you want to um write write another book and so it, it wasn't a huge surprise and i kind of i had sat down a couple of times and thought you know what might you write uh, but it was a whole lot different when someone actually says, hey, you know, do you want to write? Do you want to start now writing? Um, so someone contacted, an editor or a publisher contacted you? Yeah, that's right. So when COVID hit, I was um, living up in Norway and I suddenly became the Kiwi stuck with 350 husky dogs in Norway. Um, and that, I think, came through stuff. They did a little news article on me. Um, and also another friend of mine who was stuck in Svalbard as well. She was on there also. Um, and then National Radio heard about that. So they got in contact with me and we did a, a quick chat with Jim Mora one morning um, from the snow up there down to summer down here or whatever it was. Um, and then, yeah, a week after that, um, a publisher contacted me from, right. um, by the name of Alex Headley. And he commissioned me to write for um, HarperCollins. Autobiography, yeah. So he kind of came up on the very first day with a pretty cool idea. He just said, "Write your story." I see it being two parts: where you came from, where you went to, um, and that had that sparked something with me because that was a story I always wanted to tell. I didn't just want to tell a story of growing up in the wilderness because that's only, to me only half a story. Yep. Anyone can been... grow up in the wilderness, but you know, do you actually turn out? Do you manage to do much in the rest of your life? So I wanted to share what else I'd done, which I thought kind of put that whole story together nicely. Um, once he said that, I thought, yeah, I'm definitely in for this. Um, on a side note, I'd been working with tourism for, for a little while. And then so COVID had literally just happened. Tourism was kind of, um, tourism work wasn't out of the wind, out of um, the picture completely up in northern Norway where I was living. I was working with dogs, so I still had a bit of work. Uh, but it was here and there. It wasn't reliable. And so suddenly it was like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing for the next year. Yeah. That's perfect because yeah. there'll be times in that year where I can just sit down and write. Um, so I signed the contract um, and gave myself a year. I knew that if I just, I didn't really care what the number was. Yeah. You just sign it. Okay, 12 months. I know in the back of my head I can do it. Other people have done it. Mum and dad have done it. I can do it. Um and then I forgot about it for a little while. I think I forgot about it for about two or three months because, um, of course, 12 months is a long time. And then I actually cut my hand. I had a little bit of, a, of an accident, cut my hand on some glass. And that slowed me down. Suddenly, I wasn't working with the dogs very much. Um, and it took me a little while before my finger kind of recovered so I could even move my um, other fingers. But once I could, then I started to type with, with basically one and a half hands um, I sat down one day and I thought, hey, I've got to do it. Where do you start? And I kind of made a list of bullet points of, of what I'd done both growing up and, and where I'd been afterwards. And I knew there was some things you have to talk about, going to school for the first time, um, what it was like to leave home, you know, what, what, how we lived out there with the vegetable garden and all of that. But then also there was things like you know, going to Antarctica on a Russian icebreaker ship great chapter that was quite easy you put that one down and you know that one day you'll sit down and write that one it's probably going to be a chapter of the book same with norway same with a couple of other things it was like quite easy to set those things out and then once you've got that kind of guide it wasn't just an endless thing like you could keep writing things on that list 
but it's broken into small modules. Exactly. And and you just come into it. You don't sit down to write a book one day. You sit down to write a, a story or a chapter. And then you know, tomorrow you can do another one. And if, if anyone out there is um, thinking of writing a book, my biggest piece of advice is write the easiest chapter first. Write what's the, maybe it's the freshest in your mind or it's the most interesting or the most vivid or something. Write that one first. Because once you get started, it's easy. Getting started, sitting down that first day to write your first words on a 85,000 plus word book is definitely daunting. So make it as easy as you can for yourself. And say if you can go through that kind of list that you might be able to make up, if you hit like um, you know, two thirds or three quarters of them, you'll fill in the gaps pretty easy after that. So was it hard... Um finding the balance, telling your um, sort of emotional stories or stories that are close to your heart that maybe is a bit difficult to share with people that obviously you don't know who are going to read the book? Yeah, there's a kind of thing in your mind all the time, like, do I put that in, do I not? Um, again, a lot of people come up, have come up to me and said, oh, you know, I don't know if I'd want to write about some things. So don't. No one knows what you didn't put in. But often they're the things that are the most interesting, aren't they? The the your sort of deep inner feelings that we all have, and for sure they can be. And so it's a little trade off in mm. your mind. You like you have to put some of them in, and then sometimes some things you'll put in, and then perhaps later on you'll take out, or the editor will say, "Ah, oh, maybe not," um, or suggest that you take it out. But in general, you can. Yeah, as long as you're putting plenty of interesting things in, then leaving a few things out that you're like, I just don't know if I feel comfortable talking about that. It's fine. Most people don't don't know. Mm. I think um, it was in your book. You you talked about your friend dying, which was obviously mm. a, a bit of a raw thing. And you you said it's been really emotional reliving each of these moments again through the process of writing. Um, and has been incredibly rewarding. Absolutely. The whole process of writing, you're just totally reliving everything, which which you may never stop to think about. A lot of people live a pretty busy life and they probably die at the very end of it and they might never actually even sit down and stop and think about some of those things that have happened. And um, it was incredibly rewarding to go back and relive um everything you know or at least everything that i could remember and everything that i put into the book and even the things that didn't make it in the book i still relive those um and i do think now and then going into the future what i remember of my childhood will be what i put in that book True. what i forget of my childhood is probably what i didn't put in or didn't make it in um just because after afterwards and even once while i was writing it i remember um telling stories to people and it was always the same stories that i'd written and that's when i realized like okay what i put in here that's what i will remember when i'm 80 years old i probably won't remember myself that's funny. yeah yeah so in some ways it's good because you've you've locked that up it's there you can't forget it because you always go back and read it yourself um but then yeah maybe the other things you yeah, will kind of drift away now so i think from memory the last major event in the book was your norway experience which was about a year ago. Uh, right? So or 18 months. I was in Norway from 2000, 
19 at the very end of the year to um, 2021 May. So do you want to tell us what's been happening in your life since the book? Because no one knows too much about that. (laughs) Exactly. I think I summed it up with my last line, which went something like, um, I will be shortly putting on my backpack and um, behind me will be some footprints and I will have disappeared over the horizon or on a plane or or um, a ship or a boat somewhere. Yeah. And that really left it very open because there was, this is just half of a Did you know story. what you were going to do at that point? No, I had no idea. I'd just come back to New Zealand, I think. Um, so I was still in that writing process, obviously. Um, I don't think I wrote the Norway chapter until I left Norway, and then I sat down one day and wrote it. Um, and it's actually a significant part of the book was written in MIQ isolation, right? Um, 17 floors above Auckland, which yeah. was, it was a pretty fun place to sit and food would turn up at the door and all I had to do <laughs> was eat it and write for 14 days. Had nothing else to do. Um, yeah, and then so I came back to New Zealand and I was kind of um, quite lost in many ways. I probably had my first midlife or quarter life crisis or whatever you want to call it. Um, I'd been doing all these amazing things. I'd been kind of just going the whole time. I'd never really stopped to think about life and where I'm going and whatever. There was always something else waiting for me and something else and something else. Um, when I was in Norway, I got to stop for a little bit longer than normal, forced to stop a bit longer. And then I was kind of forced to stop a bit longer back here in New Zealand. Wasn't really loving life as much as I normally would. Um, and I was struggling to find something that I really like, just wanted to do. Um, and it took me a little while. So I was thinking about things for about um, pretty much a year. And then one day, I kind of remembered my love for flying. And flying is, in the book, is a large part of a lot of things I was doing, um, especially down in, at home, but also in Antarctica. I was working with helicopters a bit and at different places. And so I thought, well, I've, I've always considered being a pilot. Um, it's also quite risky. So I'm kind of weighing up these two things. You, know, yeah. you live a life where you're spending most of the time in a, up in the air somewhere. Um, but then I went mountain climbing one day and I was up in the air on this crazy dangerous mountain and big bits of rock moving under my feet, hundreds of meters above anything. I, and I thought, well, if I do this, then I can't say no to flying. So I went down the very next day, I went down and did a um, trial flight at Wanaka Helicopters in a, a fixed wing airplane. Um, loved it so much. It was the, probably the craziest overload I've ever had. It's mental overload. So many things to, mm. to think When you about. first leave that the first... ground flying it yourself, <laughs> it's just a weird, cool feeling, isn't it? No one can realize just how many things you're having to kind of think about and consider it all at the same time up there. Yeah, I still remember that feeling on my first flight. I but... can imagine you would, yeah. yeah. Mm. So that was awesome and I thought oh, I'll keep doing that because suddenly I was like, I got these books to start studying the theory and I was excited. I'd wake up and I'd, be, I'd think, okay, I'm going to do this today. And kind of um, it sparked that thing in me again, which I just lost for maybe a year. Um, so I started doing that and then um, continued on. I did lots of the theory through the winter when the weather wasn't so good. Someone gave me the advice. They said, go do the theory. That way when you go do the practical, you start right through to your PPL exam. You don't have to stop flying at any point. You can catch up um, because you're waiting for your theory to to do. Anyway, so I did that. Did all, smashed out all the exams, some of the commercial exams as well. um, And then moved up here to Motueka where where we are now. Um, In October 
2022. And then I went to the aero club down there. I said, I just want to fly as much as possible, two times, five days a week, um, two times every day until we get this done. And so I was, cool. suddenly I was like really working quite um, intently on that. Uh, and then um, I think it was the 15th of December, um, I was talking to a friend and she said she was going back to Antarctica again on a, on a ship. And I was, it, suddenly I was like, wait, you're going back to Antarctica? And I was like, oh, okay, of course, tourism's kind of kicked back up again. COVID's gone away. Um, people are going back down there again. So suddenly I was in two minds because <laughs> um, she said there's a ship going to the Ross Sea and they're looking for people. And having lived at Scott Base, I figured that there'd be a good chance I'd, I'd probably get a role on board. Um, and so suddenly I was in two minds because I was trying to do this flying thing and I was, suddenly I want to go to Antarctica again. Um, so I sent them a CV. And um, they got back to me straight away. I had a contract by about 2, 2 a.m. that night. Wow. Um, to be expedition guide on on a um, ice-strengthened, kind of ex-Soviet ice-strengthened ship now run by a company from the Netherlands. 100, no, was it 90 meters long, um, 80 passengers on board. So I couldn't say no to that, which gave me exactly one month to do, to finish my private pilot's license because I wanted to get that done. Otherwise, that was going to be annoying to have to come back and do. Um, and then I figured I'd go away and, and do this. So I just got stuck in. Um, it was a pretty full-on month. But it finished at 5 p.m. on the 11th of January. I got my private pilot's license. Finished awesome. the... Um, flight exam at 5 p.m. and then at 8 o'clock the next morning, I jumped on a plane out of Nelson <laughs> to the, somewhere I'd never been before. Um, flew to Auckland, Santiago, Chile, Buenos Aires, and then down to Ushuaia. By the time I got there, I'd been just so stressed, so busy. I'd had wisdom teeth out as well because of, to go to Antarctica. Um, I got, got on board so jet-lagged and straight into a rough Drake's Passage and seasickness just killed me for a few days. But I bet when you got on that plane, it was just like, oh, thank God, I've got 12 hours with nothing to do. Just about, yeah. It had been a very full-on mm. three months to do a private pilot's license. Yeah, that's like, amazing. Like, it, it's full-on. I don't think you could do it in much less than that. Um, just every single day, everything I was thinking about was that or recovering from it. Like you go up for a lesson... And then it was the hardest thing to not think about anything just for two hours. Go home, just have a little lie on the couch or something to recover again. So then at 2 p.m. you'd be back up in the sky learning the next lesson. But it was so much fun. I loved it. Looking back, it was such an amazing experience to go through. And if anyone's doing a private pilot's license, I would strongly recommend do your theory first because that way you can just jump in the plane and you're off and you, you just... It's always the exams that hold people up, and yeah. yeah. Anyway, well done. That's a fantastic achievement to do it in three months. So, um, while we're on the flying subject, are you, you carrying on to a commercial? I would like to. So that, suddenly, I'm stuck between these two things because the guiding work in Antarctica is is amazing. I love it so much. It's a huge amount of responsibility. Um, you're taking people and you're landing on the the most remote rocks of the globe just about in the most wild conditions. So I love it so much. 
Um, of course, I haven't lost my love for flying as well. So I do really want to keep working on that. So it's a balance between the two because it's good money working in Antarctica and flying is expensive. So I am in a very good position where I can work and I can quite easily pay for the flying that I'd be doing. Do you see alongside. a career in flying one day or you're not really? I would really like to, yeah. 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 Fixed wing or helicopters? Fixed wing. Okay. Can we start off with the icebreaker yeah. experience? Because I think that's pretty much where it all started for you. Is that correct? Absolutely. Sort of Before the doors that, that was a name, I'd probably studied it in my homeschooling or something. and But I don't think I even had a re- an image of what was what was there other than Emperor Penguins, like which is most, what most people think. Um, yeah, so I was at home one day, I got a message um, from my auntie saying, hey, do you want a job on a Russian icebreaker going to Antarctica? It was her words. Um, and it was like a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend or something that she'd heard about this ship leaving New Zealand. They needed people as soon as possible. It was leaving in four days. I was at home at Gorge River, so not the easiest place to go anywhere from. Um, and we got on the phone and our um, friend... Roger said, yes, I can come and get you tomorrow sort of thing. So, okay, that's possible. Um, I can actually get to the ship and then thought about it for a little bit. And I think two hours later, I signed a contract. Um, not really knowing anything other no. than this icebreaker leaving to Antarctica. And it sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah. It, I just I don't know if it even sounded exciting. It's just it was unknown. Mm. And to me, it was like, of course, I have to say yes to that and then see if we can make the other things work. Um, and it did. Luckily, I didn't have many plans at the time. Um, so I got to Christchurch, boarded the ship four days later. Um, five days later, we disappeared over the horizon. And pretty much um, everything in the world that I knew disappeared over that horizon with New Zealand. <clears throat> um, and I disappeared off to sea. Um, it was, a, again, as a tourist ship, very similar to what I'm working on now. What so was your role? I was a cold galley chef on board. Originally, I was meant to be a wine steward. Didn't know anything about wine. Also, <laughs> didn't know anything about food. Um, but they needed people right now. So, anyone was still better than no one. So, I was working on the third floor um, of that icebreaker ship, right near the bow. <clears throat> um, and there was two galleys. So, I was in the bottom galley, so the cold galley. So, we didn't cook anything, but we made salads and chopped cucumber and cabbages and uh, just you know, peeled boxes of boiled eggs and uh, made appetizers for people um, for like the 120 guests that were on board plus some of the other staff and everything. Um, I didn't have a passion for food. I, st- I, I like cooking now, but I'm not someone who rain, hail or shine, seasick or not seasick, has that passion for food. And that's really what you need in that role. Um, I was getting paid $4 an hour as well, which is not very much. I was working about 16 hours every day, um, no days off, and the whole contract was two months. If you quit on the second last day, you don't get paid for anything. So, really? So you're really totally thrown in there and there's no way out of this thing. No, and you, so, I mean, you can't quit because you've got to stay on the ship anyway. Exactly, so. yeah. They'll lock you up. Like You can quit, but they'll lock you up. And then when you get back to port, they'll throw you off, but you don't get paid for anything you did either. So that was pointless. Um, and it was tough. It was it was incredibly rough heading off in the ocean. I hadn't worked at sea before. This particular ship, um, it, it was a top-heavy bathtub. Is basically how you describe it, an icebreaker. So it has all the weight very high up to push down onto the ice. 
that has a round bottom and in the Southern Ocean, it just rolls. And we would roll to about 45 degrees quite, quite comfortably. So that's your whole world's just rocking around like this. And I was reasonably, uh, not overly seasick because they gave us some pretty hard seasickness medication. Uh, but it was just the, the time working 16 hours. It was only just enough time to sleep to kind of recover what you, the energy that you burnt yesterday and then bam, you straight into it again. And some of the stories you, you said about um, in the really rough seas about stuff going everywhere and... Yeah, there was days where you could you could stand there for an hour chopping a something, cucumber for example, a box, big box of cucumbers or whatever. And then in that moment, you know, that box might just slide off the table, smash in the corner. That's your hour's work done, gone, wasted, and then you start again. And so there's moments where it's pretty demoralizing. Um, however, I got to go to Antarctica. And so once we got down there, um, it was just very occasionally because um, the passengers were going ashore like every day or every second day once you're down there. Also, it's flat once you're in the ice. It's nice and calm. So, it right. takes away the ocean aspect, which helps a bit. Um, but anyway, sometimes they'd, the expedition leader would come in and say, um, you two meet on the heli deck in 10 minutes with your jackets on. And everyone else take up the slack for these two sort of for the next hour. And then so suddenly you're transported from this world of like this food and this ship and everything um, off to the penguin colony or top of an iceberg or a beach with, with 300,000 penguins. Just you're transported to this incredible place. Like the very first landing I remember was an emperor penguin colony with emperor penguin babies. To this day, um, I've been back several times. I've not seen that again other than on that particular ship. So you get to see things that um, still are once in a lifetime experiences for me. Yeah. Just for one hour, yeah. and then you're transported back another eight hours of work in the. In and the in galley. that one hour, did you think I need to be back here working? This it, is where it, you know this is worth it. Exactly, because when you're going ashore, suddenly you're like oh, these some people they're, they're guiding the yeah the customers ashore and loading the helicopters and. Driving a Zodiac, I knew it's, I could do that for sure with a bit of experience. I can do that um, and a bit of practice. Many of those skills I kind of already had, um, but I was still very young at that stage. I was only 19. Um, so, yeah, after that, uh, I survived the two months and that was pretty full on. It was the longest two months of my life. Um, some of the worst days of my life for sure were down there and some of the best moments as well. And so coming back, then suddenly I like looked up all the companies and I started sending CVs out. And I was 19, so I didn't really get um, much back. I got always got replies usually, but I didn't get any job offers for another five years or so. Can I just butt in quickly and go back to the icebreaker? Can you just say what it's like when you're charging through the ice or, or ramming the ice to crack it? Was it loud and scary? Um, and... It's not as loud and scary as people think. The ocean is scary. That is, when you're rolling 45 degrees and your whole world is just toss like a cork that's scary when you're in the ice it's um it's just incredibly powerful and it's this massive ship um and it has three hulls so so the um you got three three layers, layers to keep the yep. water out essentially yeah and it had three um three propellers three propeller shafts and it was twenty four thousand horsepower massive massive amount of power for a 120 meter long vessel so it's not the largest ship um and so they could drive through 
up to kind of one to three meters of ice. They could break three meters, but not continuously. You'd probably stop. That's three meter Three thickness. meters thick of sea ice. It's unbelievable, so isn't it? Through the winter, the ocean is frozen thicker and thicker and thicker. And then we were down there like kind of at the end of winter, November, December. And so, yeah, just you just crushed through that. So it's higher than the roof ceiling. On average, it's probably one to two meters that you're breaking through. Um, and so the, the ship, it, it pushes down on the ice. People think the bow kind of rides up. It's a continuous motion. So the bow might be sitting a bit higher, but ice is just constantly getting pushed under the under that bow. It breaks it. And then the ice, it's very important that it comes out the side of the ship so it doesn't hit propellers because right. you don't want to hit hit propellers um and then you look behind and you have the big line through the ice and then it's closing up again behind you just like that wow um but but, the, but most of this time you're just stuck in the galley most of the time you're in the galley <laughs> which is probably the closest because the ice would have been like yeah five meters away on, yeah. on each side because we're at sea level um and then so sometimes you'd hit something quite large and you'd you'd kind of the whole ship would shudder and and it would sometimes you would um, decelerate quite quickly in that moment as well. It never threw you around, but you definitely felt it. In fact, it, it took me a long time to get used to because it felt exactly like an earthquake. And coming growing up in New Zealand, like earthquakes are usually bad news. Um, so I would always think like, oh, that millisecond, like, oh, earthquake, no, it's not an earthquake. <laughs> and then you can relax again. That was kind of the motion. It's that yeah. shaky feeling. Yeah, great experience. Though. Incredible experience yeah. to be right in, in that bow so from there that um obviously opened up opportunities for you because you've been to antarctica and you can put something on your cv so your next trip was actually to antarctica pretty much yeah it, it got antarctica on your cv there's a thing with most tour companies that go down there um, you actually have to have about 50% of your staff who have been there before. Right. It's a box that they've got to tick. So suddenly, um, even if you don't know anything, you help them tick that box. Um, it helps, of course, if you know some things. Um, anyway, so yeah, I eventually got a job with Heritage Expeditions and did some trips down to the New Zealand sub-Antarctic Islands on a very similar sort of ship. Not a big icebreaker, but ice strength and a, about an 80 meter long vessel. Um, and then I got to do one trip to the Ross Sea with them, which was really special. As a guide? Yeah, expedition yeah, guide. So, so, the, so sort of more in line with what you wanted to end up doing. The job that I've been looking for, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a smaller ship, so you have about three expedition guides, so you do a lot of different things. You do, you know, um, don't help out in the kitchen quite so much, but you run the bar and a few different things like that, um, as, as well as lecturing and Zodiac driving and guiding ashore. Um, but on that trip, we visited Scott Base and had a tour of the base and everything, New Zealand's um, research station down there. And so suddenly I thought, hey, that looks like a pretty cool place. So I should apply for a job there. And I think it was two years later then um, I flew south on the um, the American Air Force C-17 from Christchurch Yep. Um, and set sights for five months down there working at Scott Base as a field trainer. That was taking it to a, another step again because you weren't the guide on coming from the ship to shore, but you're actually living there. Mm. So what's a field trainer? So a field trainer, um, basically yeah, my role was to, to teach people how to live and work safely outside in Antarctica. People who were working down there? 
Yeah, a lot of base staff, scientists who are coming through, um, pretty much anyone coming in. So you might have some media people as well and also some special guests um, or staff from the company or something. And so they would come in and pretty much everyone would, would go through a field training course, which was a, a one a two-day, um, one overnight um, camping trip out onto the ice shelf. So that was just like a crash course for people and um, how to put their gloves on properly and how to <laughs> dig a hole in the snow and how to make shelter and how to put up a camp and how to boil water and all that really simple, sounds so simple. It's just like we go do it out here in New Zealand in the woods for a night. Mm. Um, down there is like just a completely different experience and sometimes just to do that was you know, the, the most that someone could do um, just, just to go and camp for a night. And But it was incredibly rewarding because you could teach... Uh, so many skills once you learn them yourself like even though um, even though you know you grow up in the wilderness of New Zealand nothing prepares you for that moment you see it out of the plane down there but after about two weeks of negative 40 degrees you do get used to it believe it or not um, and then I could start to pass on those skills to the other people yeah when I wasn't training scientists uh, you might be out with them so just um, you kind of taxi driving in some ways with the the Hagelin vehicles it's with like you see in the Antarctic Center down in Christchurch with the big um, tracks on two cabins with two tracks on each and we'd be driving um, out to places like Cape Evans out to Cape Royds uh, which is where Scott's hut is and Shackleton's hut you might be taking a dive group out you might be helping to drill a hole through the sea ice so that the divers could go through you might be putting a um, a little hut on top and getting the fire going so that the divers are warm or you might be um, getting in a helicopter with some people and flying for two days in a one direction to some isolated penguin colony to take um, penguin guano samples. It, it was some very Just an incredible range things. of work. Yeah, exactly. You kind of get up in the morning and be like, oh, okay, I'm going here today. And sometimes it was that training and sometimes it was also just going and kind of just being the logistics behind a lot of the science programs that go on down there so you mentioned um scott and shackleton's huts what were they like to visit i mean most history that's you know 100 120 years old is long gone but down there it's preserved mm. down there it's preserved um to a point and then the antarctic heritage trust have, have actually gone and um properly preserved them so in, in some ways they, they pulled much of those huts apart and then put them all back together again mm. um in a historical but isn't there still um fur from seals that you know was yeah. there in their day it's still there frozen yep when you step in inside um especially into scott's cape evans hut when you step in there there's a um, huge pile stacked of um of seal blubber and the smell, that smell goes like throughout the whole building. You can't describe the smell, but it's the the mustiest kind of um, musty, fatty smell. And it's from that blubber. And that's a smell that you'll never smell anywhere. I've never smelled that somewhere. Um, but yeah, the moment you step inside those huts, it's like stepping inside a living museum because the thing that you're in is the museum. It's not like stepping in a museum to see the thing. You're actually in it. 
and it's so not it's like entire, it's not entirely a recreation <clears throat> the actual it's actually what was things there. in the wildlife that was there in their day is there now exactly. it's almost like you're transported back yeah the seal, time, the seal blub is there and the, the live seals are still walking uh, yeah so cool sliding around outside as well yeah exactly and there's a penguin um which is what we call freeze-dried essentially from time dehydrated uh just from being down there so long and it's just sitting on the table which was scott's table and then over on the over on the left you have um, a nice window so there's a bit of light because the hut's quite dark um and that's where all the science um, equipment was and there's like test tubes and all every different kind of thing they the amount of provisions they took down was amazing you see everything from the medicines to the the photo dark room where Herbert okay. Ponting um, developed the photos through to the um, science side, the little, the living, the kitchen, um, and the bunks. It's all there. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. It's incredible, isn't it? Describe Antarctica. Um, in Ken Tustin's book, he said, uh, it isn't possible to leave Antarctica unmoved. Did you did you find that was it was it a very emotional place? Um, yeah, I don't get overly emotional as such. It's more awe inspiring. So I really feel the energy and the power of a place. So and and the the raw things around you, the wind and the cold and and the the beauty. Probably my um, favorite thing about Antarctica is the light that you get, the twilight. Yeah. So for example, um, just describing an, an, an evening that I had earlier this summer um we were on the icebreaker uh, on the um tourist ship it's ice strengthened ship and so we're going through the ice quite near to scott base it's just the area where i spent a lot of time it's just over there. it's just over in the ocean a little bit from there stones throw away um and the the ocean surface was refreezing because this is march so it's it's cold um and it's getting colder by the day and the surface of the ocean is made up of these pancake pancakes of ice, essentially. Mm. Circles, sometimes they're small. On this evening, they're about the size of a, of a dinner tray, like quite large dinner tray. Yeah. And they're all just sitting on the surface and they're all I've kind of jostling I've seen the photos together. you put on Instagram. Crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And that's the ocean. The whole ocean is like this. As far as you can see, it's refreezing. And the ship's just kind of cruising through those. And there's a few icebergs. Small chunks of ice that you're like bouncing off, and there's some big icebergs that you're driving around and avoiding. Um, and then in the in the distance, you've got or behind you is Mount Erebus, with the sun shining on. Um, and then in the on the other side, you've got the um, McMurdo Dry Valleys, which is a rift mountain range. And you've got all these mountain valleys. Each valley has got a glacier coming down it. And then you've got the sun, which is just kind of dipped behind those mountains. And then it goes, it'll come out into one of those valleys and it's just like shining gold. The colors are incredible. And then it goes down below the horizon. But of course, it doesn't get dark because it's just below the horizon all night. Um, and then so two o'clock in the morning, you've kind of got that really gray dusk and you've got this pinky color right up high and then dark, dark um, gray above you. And then the light right along the, um, above those hills. And it's just incredible. You got a couple of emperor penguins standing around on the, ice that it, as the ship cruises past you know, they're kind of looking up at you there's there's one of those moments that yeah 
Yeah, you'll never forget. Yeah. So talking about the penguins, the wildlife photos seem amazing. Yeah. They look huge, those penguins. Yeah. So a penguin, um, what I'd like to say is if you sit down on the on the ice, they're pretty much you eye to eye to a penguin. So if you're standing up, they're a bit below you. Um, they're just over a meter tall. And the emperors, uh, that's the emperors. The, the dallies are about... Um, 40 centimeters or so high but they've got a lot more personality right but the emperors are majestic they're just yeah. the most incredible creature that you'll ever see um, and they live in the roughest place coldest wildest environment fun fact what most people don't realize um, penguins don't really walk so much they're not really designed to walk very much um, but so when they travel they actually go down onto their belly this is the emperors and their dallies um, and they just push themselves along with their feet <laughs> So most of the time, they're actually traveling along like that, and then they'll stop, they'll see you, and they'll stop, then they'll push themselves up with their beak, and then they'll be standing, and then they'll look around. <laughs> then they'll walk up to you, like the last 10 meters or so. So they're not scared of humans? Not scared of humans at all. No, they'll come, um, so we're not allowed to approach the wildlife, but if you sit down, like most of the time, they'll quite often come quite close. And I did have one walk right up to me, it was standing about 50 centimeters away from me, um, which is quite normal and then this one in particular just bent down and just gently kind of seeing what my finger was yeah <laughs> not wow. in an aggressive way at all it was just yeah. curious what is what is this human thing yeah um and yeah you just said it's the most amazing um moment like i enjoy those moments but for me the most satisfying thing is you know you've just bought two engineers and a, a chef or something out with you and um yeah it's the probably the moment of their life and so it was i love it myself but it's taking people to see that and sharing really the, and sharing that exactly I, that's why i've done quite a bit of youtube as well because not everyone has the ability to go that far to be showing those things so um i can also show it through video to the rest of the world as well yeah which is fantastic yeah um Getting around in Antarctica, it's easy for us to think that it's easy in a modern world, you know, with helicopters and haglins and but I imagine it's it's not or very weather dependent anyway. It's weather dependent. It's easy to get around in a small area um, sometimes, and then uh, other days it'll, the weather will be so windy and it's just blowing all the snow that you can't see a thing and you won't be allowed to go off station if you're on a ship you're not going to go off the ship um and so yeah it, it depends on kind of what what you've got um helicopters are good for getting to places but there's a lot of wind so you're constantly battling with the wind um Hagland vehicles are, are good they have radars on them as well um so it's a kind of like sailing a um a yacht at night you can sail uh, you can drive the Hagland uh just following the flagged routes and the flags okay. so in a whiteout condition or something yeah in a whiteout yeah. condition you can actually go anywhere um still anywhere that you on, along the safe routes that you know of you don't tend to make a habit of it but if you have to you can and if it's if you're out and the weather comes up you can get home again um so that was pretty good is it that's where the technology is really amazing um, that you don't fly using that sort of technology through a blizzard. You just don't fly. Um, whereas you could drive on a skidoo that's incredibly cold, so you might not do that. 
Um, and then aeroplanes coming down from New Zealand, they have a lot of challenges just because it's so far to go. Point of no return is a big thing, um, whether you have enough fuel to come home again. So you really got to get that right. And then intercontinental flights with um, like twin otters and basler planes from Kenborough Air. They come all the way down from Canada each summer. They're difficult because you're traveling from one place to another place. The weather forecasts are not very reliable. There's a lot of fog in places as well. So when it comes to flying, it's pretty challenging doing very much. We use Zodiacs from the ship, uh, which is treacherous because um, Zodiacs don't go very well in sea ice. So you're constantly torn between like, there's water now, but you know you might have a three knot current. Is it still going to be water or is it going to be sea ice flows coming through when we're bringing the people back in three hours and that's a really tough decision to make so there's some photos on or video on instagram from your most recent trip i think of getting people off zodiacs yeah which look oh yeah nasty. I know what you're talking about um that particular moment was the one of the highlights of my summer we we landed at cape evans which is a place where it's been so many times it's amazing to go back there and we had 80 people on board and um, 12 staff. And so we, we it was 50 knots of wind. This is very windy. Um, you could never take a boat out in those conditions, except we were actually in the shelter of this little cape, which is Cape Evans. Um, so we were. it was an offshore wind for us. So there was not very much waves, and except at the ship. There was about a one meter chop by the time you got to the ship. Uh, but you could land on the beach and there was no ice on the beach because that wind was also conveniently blowing all the ice away. So suddenly it was like, okay, we can do this. Um, it was negative 15 degrees to go with that. So negative 15 plus 60 knots or 50 knots of wind is about negative 32 we worked out. So it was brutally cold and the winds just go straight through you. Um, and so we got we had to get people from the gangway onto the, onto the Zodiac, into shore, from the Zodiac onto shore, and they went and visited Scott's hut, got to go in there, which was an incredible moment for them. Bit of a walk around, bit of a hike, back onto the Zodiac and then back to the ship. By the time we kind of finished up that operation, um, most people were, were very cold. Uh, and there was, there was two of us who didn't get cold. I was one because I'd worked in those conditions down there before. I knew the place reasonably well, so I was comfortable. There was one other guy from Svalbard who... He didn't get cold. He's used to it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was used to those conditions um, where he, where he lives, um, but everyone else was was you know definitely feeling it. You could see the eyes were just like, "Well, this is Antarctica. This is not what we're used to." Because most of these guides are used to being up on the Antarctic Peninsula, where it's usually zero or negative five at most. Suddenly, you're like really just so far out there. So that was an amazing experience for me because I could really in some ways show my strengths of of um and the true antarctic guiding the ross sea guiding that's the true antarctica do you feel the pressure of responsibility for keeping these people safe i mean that looked to have a significant amount of risk to it or was it not as bad as it looked it's not as bad as it looks um, probably the main thing with that is you have a warm ship and no matter what happens, you just have to take that person back to the ship. Mm. So if you would never do that kind of operation, that landing without a warm place to go, you couldn't do it. But um, 
the yes, there's a lot of responsibility. People paid a l- huge amount of money, uh, about fifty thousand Kiwi dollars for this trip, um, and they've spent thirty three days of their life to get to this place. That hut could be the hut that they've dreamed of seeing all of their life, and this is the moment you can make it happen or not. So it's an incredibly hard decision because you've got eighty people like that, um, all you know a reason why they've come there. And then behind you, you've got your staff. Like, okay, can this group of staff make this happen? Um, and then you've got the conditions outside. <laughs> can we do it in those conditions? And so there's always a kind of somewhere in the middle where it's like, yes, you can, but there's risk involved. Um, and to what, how far do you push it? It depends a lot on how isolated you are. Uh, what the consequences are if the consequences are someone gets really cold that's fine because you get them back you warm them up on the ship um if the consequences if it's flying and the consequences the helicopter crashes that's a very different story so you must have sort of risk mitigation plans for all sorts of scenarios exactly you're always um you're always working around risk in the outdoors and Risk, it's something that a lot of people think you can put a circle around and put a, a label it or um, or contain it or manage it or whatever um, or eliminate it completely. But in the outdoors, it's a very dynamic environment and you really have to understand what is going on. If you understand the environment, then you can recognize the risks involved. If you don't understand it, you can never recognize. Um, and... That's just what you get, I guess, the longer you're out in the outdoors, you get that. Um, and so growing up, I had a head start from, from Gorge River. It's not the safest place to grow up. Um, but because I would, I learned as a kid, um, you know, you go out, you get wet and you get cold. So you won't do that again. You learn from your mistakes. And, and you mentioned times. a lot of times that um, your dad kept saying, there's no doctor here. There's no hospital. You can't hurt yourself here. Exactly. Yeah. No one chooses to have an accident, but you can definitely try very hard not to. Like really, um, but without wrapping yourself in cotton wool. There's either, a difference, isn't there? There is a difference because um, it's, it's conscious decisions. You're like, okay, today we're not going to go and um, yeah, you're not going to cross the river today. There's sometimes the river is a great example. You get, trampers come along the coastline. They want to get a ride across the river and that's great we'll always give people a ride across um but then the weather's bad today you know it just rained how desperately do you need to get them across the river maybe we just stay on this side and we don't go today but then maybe you can do it because you can make it happen um and so it's constantly kind of weighing up that um consequences and versus severity as well and uh you know if something goes wrong are you going to get washed out to sea, which is a pretty bad place to go in a flood, or are you still going to be able to get yourself back to shore, which is fine? Yeah. In my previous life as a safety manager, I always used to say that risk is a, a big, wide, grey line. You know, yes. there's a point yeah, on one side of that line where if you don't get out of bed, things are probably going to be okay, and there's a point on the other side where... Um, you just wouldn't go because it's too unsafe. But everywhere in the middle, it might be okay. It might not. You've got to, like you say, understand the risks and have a think about life. And um, there's no right or wrong often, is there? Exactly. That's 
there's not mm. um you can't eliminate it completely because otherwise like you said you would never get out of bed in the morning yeah i i'm i really strongly am against eliminating it it's you're managing it so you're constantly weighing up between um doing it how much you need to do it versus the consequences of, of if something goes wrong um yeah and and on commercial levels it's very different than personal levels as exactly well, you can have a lot of pressure on yeah commercial levels and on personal levels you can maybe push things a bit more that's the time to push it mm. so you've visited over 60 countries backpacking um teaching outdoor education in china and hong kong as well yeah. correct um Eastern Europe, spent time on uh, Pacific Tropical Island. What yeah, events? Tonga. Tonga. What places or events from all of those trips stand out in your memory? Uh, there's quite there's quite a few. The island in Tonga was interesting. It was the island that was the closest to that volcano that went off. So where I was is beautiful tropical island. Now it's just white clean. Wow. It's just a sandbar pretty much. There's nothing. So it was pretty interesting. Uh, it's the only place I've been that's been completely destroyed since. Um, working in Hong Kong and China, that was fascinating. Uh, I was doing outdoor education, but it, it was pretty tame outdoor education. Uh, but you're in an environment that changed a lot. Antarctica changes, it's the weather. It's always throwing something at you. In um, Hong Kong and China, it was more socially. Like um, you might remember this hotel that we're uh, working in uh, it was just across a lake so you had to take a little um, boat for let's say 20 minutes across this beautiful little lake it's a beautiful little hotel tucked away um, it might have been 10 or 12 people staying there but it was huge and uh, but very quiet and I remember we were there and we were ready for our people to turn up so we went off to the train station and we received, I think it was 110 eight-year-olds. This is all kids, usually international school kids. Full on, 110 of these um, these little kids and they came along and we got them on the boat and we got them across to this, um, this kind of secluded hotel in the middle of nowhere. And unbeknown to us, while we'd been away, and this took us about three hours, while we'd been away, a thousand people had descended on this hotel for a conference. Okay. A thousand people is nothing. A thousand people can just come up out of nowhere over there, just like a storm comes up out of nowhere in Antarctica. It's probably some warning if you know the signs, but if you don't know the signs, it just appears. You're like, okay. And so it was raining, and there's this massive um, dining room with like, it could seat a thousand people. Um, anyway, so we turned up there and all the kids needed to go inside because it was pouring down with rain um, and they just disappear into this crowd of adults, <laughs> which are all taller than the kids and 110 kids just, just vanished Gone. into this crowd of a thousand people. And Who you're responsible for them? That coming? Exactly. And you're responsible for working out how to solve that problem um, and... But you do. You work it out in, in the moment and that's one that will stick with me for the rest of my life. That was, we never could have seen that coming. Um, and then other places, I remember going for a hike there one day and there's this really rickety bridge. We're like, oh, it's a bit dodgy crossing this bridge. Four days later when we came back to actually do our hike with the kids, brand new bridge. Wow. 
just put in not even like some sawdust on the ground. I don't know how they built it. It didn't look like they just built it, but it wasn't there four days before. So things could change quickly. Um, and it was exactly, you just apply exactly the same techniques as you do to working in the environment outside where things change quickly. Mm. Did you get um, sick very much in some of those travels with food, food issues or? No, no. So um, I've only ever been sick uh, once from food. Uh, it was very bad. It was in India. India was the only place that's ever caught up with me. Um, and yeah, interesting. So I've done quite a lot of traveling, just backpacking whenever I haven't been working somewhere like Antarctica or Norway. Um, I would just buy a one-way ticket to Southeast Asia or Europe or Central America somewhere um, and backpack around, usually trying, trying to get off the beaten tracks a little bit hard in some places, but trying to, I'll just pick a, a town I would go to that town. Sometimes it's busy, sometimes it's small, big, interesting, not. You never know. But you always find something, someone there, some people to meet, um, some places to explore around, some food to eat, some culture, whatever it is. Anywhere in the world is the same. Um, you can always find something. And and I, yeah, I'd worked in China. I'd worked in, um, I've traveled like cities like Bangkok, New York, all the biggest cities in the world just about. Nothing prepared me for India. I got into Delhi and that was an eye-opening experience. In a good way? Uh, it wasn't in a good way in the end because I got very sick there and um, it was the only time I like, had to come back to New Zealand because I wasn't well. Okay. Um, just food poisoning. But yeah, it was it was a pretty bad run of food poisoning. But um, anywhere else, I'll eat the cheapest street food anywhere because it's always the best food. Um Never had a problem anywhere else, no. Do you want to talk about Norway? It seems from reading about your Norway experience in the book, um, like it became part of your blood almost. You seem to really appreciate it and, and like it. Um, so what what was your role there? What were you doing? Uh, I was a, a guide with Husky Dogs. So I was looking after... Um, I was working with a team of about 60 people and 350 dogs. So it was a lot going on. Um, very dynamic. And we had about 25 different nationalities um, represented. One breed of dogs. Um, and yeah, so the, the role had a few different things. Sometimes we'd be looking after guests. But much of the time we'd be either looking after the dogs or actually driving the dogs with customers. What were the dogs there for? Were they racing dogs or tourists? Some were racing dogs, but ultimately it was a tourist kennel. So we'd, right. we had um, up to 18 sleds out at any one time um, occasionally. And so in the first year, I had a lot to learn. You, people, you know everything. You don't know dogs until you work with dogs. So I had a lot to learn about dogs. Um it got interesting when COVID happened because suddenly it, most people went home and there's only about seven of us stayed. And so suddenly our job was to run the dogs as much as possible. And so where we would have been sitting with customers before, suddenly we had as many dogs as we could take, so a lot of power, and um, and to sled as much as possible. And so we would just go by ourselves over the hills and far away running these dogs because the, the dogs love to run. They just they go crazy if they don't. Do you go on mark, mark tracks? Uh, well, no. So you're going in, in areas where you've gone hundreds of times, but as soon as you get the snow coming, then you're going somewhere 
off trail because the trails disappeared. Um, so yeah, that was the ultimate thing to learn because a dog will follow a track pretty well and it'll follow a line. Footprints from a moose walking across the mountain, it'll follow that. Or someone's just gone ski touring across cross-country skiing, they'll follow that line. The moment you want to go off that line, it becomes really, 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 really hard and it's between you and your lead dog as to whether you can get and encourage that dog to go where you want to go using G for right and heart for left and just the, it's the best feeling, breaking trail over the hills and far away into the distance, you know, not following where someone else has gone. Yeah, so you don't steer them like you steer a horse, it's all verbal. It's all verbal, yeah, there's no um, no physical. How many dogs would you have in, in any it one day? It depended on what you're doing, but anywhere between um, four if you're by yourself, potentially on a sled. Um, or say a tourist sled, uh, right through to 14, if you're wow. just trying to train as many as possible at any one time, through to 20, if you're trying to train as many as possible uh, using an ATV. So it's a little bit heavier, so you need more dogs to pull it, which means you can train 20 dogs at the same time. And so there's some times where I would be um, training the racing dogs. So this is kind of getting towards uh, my second winter. I had a bit more experience and I had a crash course in dog sledding by that point. Um, and so we'd be out in the forest with wheels because we didn't really have much snow yet. So we'd be just going along these icy kind of trails using the ATVs, um, with 20 dogs and it'd be just you. And if something went wrong and there's always something went wrong, you had to sort it out. And the power from 20 dogs. How do you control they it? they go somewhere. Uh, well, do- they, they're harnessed up. So they're all pointed in the same direction, which is great until one of them turns around and goes the other way. But <laughs> Uh, only the lead dogs can kind of do that. So they're specially so, trained as lead dogs, are they? Technically, yeah. But um, they're specially trained um, to pull forward. So that the worst is if the lead dogs then come back around to the to the to the first dogs. That's terrible because suddenly they're all twisted. So provided the lead dogs kind of have the enthusiasm to always go in one direction, then you can then the the whole sled stays in a straight line like this so then you can steer it by talking to your lead dogs go left or right or whatever and then all the other dogs will just follow blindly the lead dogs um the problems come when when maybe one dog gets loose and starts running around trying to just play with all of the others and then so suddenly or the worst is if um, is if your lead dog um, gets tangled in a tree and then so suddenly you've got all the other dogs still pulling you and you might be on ice, it might be very hard to break and then so suddenly your lead dogs are kind of getting twisted back around some of the others and that's a nightmare and it, all of those things happen. Yeah, and, wow, um, somehow a lot to you, learn. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. Mm. The first thing you do is you stop um, and sometimes you'd actually tie the ATV off to a tree so that you couldn't go anywhere. I mean, even when you say you stop, that doesn't sound that easy. Stopping could take <laughs> yeah, to five or ten meters. Sliding sometimes you'd steer it into a tree, yeah, because that's the only way to stop. It would be so icy. And then you take away your power, so you actually take away the. There's two lines: ones on the neck and ones on a harness, onto the dog. So you take off the harness one because that's where they use their muscles and they're pulling into that. They don't pull off the neck chain. <laughs> so you could um, release those and that way uh, you didn't have so much power behind you. 
Did you become close to any of the dogs? Yes, for sure. You definitely get close to some of the dogs. Um, one in particular, when I hurt my hand, I told you about earlier, um, suddenly I kind of had my hand like this. And if anything touched that finger, it was just agony for about three months. And so you're around dogs that jump on you and around you all the time. It was a nightmare. And so there's this one dog, she was very, very placid. Uh, her name was Ys, which is ice in Norwegian. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll take her because she doesn't jump. And, and she also followed, didn't need to be on a lead. She'd follow me. Um, so I started taking her back to my cabin. Um, and she just loved being inside so much. She'd sleep right up on the couch, uh, right next to the heater. She always had to be like 10 centimeters away from the heater. Um, even though she lived outside most of her life, she just loved being inside. Um, and so, yeah, I eventually ended up having her for about eight months as my my dog, first dog that I've ever had. Um, I always knew that when I left, I couldn't take her with me. But so it was nice because she was eight years old, so I retired her from the kennel so she didn't have to run anymore. Um, and then I found a, a friend of a friend um, who was looking for a husky and so she eventually adopted her permanently. Was that was unexpected cool. after not having spent time with dogs? Did you turn up thinking this is just another job and then come away? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit for sure. I didn't mm. really expect. But like I remember at first just being surrounded by it. Smelt like dog, dog hair everywhere, dog food everywhere, dog shit everywhere. It was like you're surrounded by dogs. And then after a while, you get used to that. What's it like in Norway when the first sun appears after a long winter? The moment you see the sun for the first time after you know, two or three months of not seeing it at all is a moment you'll never forget. And I've seen it twice, uh, but the second winter was definitely the hardest because I was working with the racing dogs and we were in this little cabin kind of off in the woods, uh, a long way off in the woods. And from where we were, you couldn't see any other light. So at night it was dark. And when it was dark for several months, it was really, really, really dark. Um, amazing because it's clear nights and you get the aurora um, borealis across the sky above and almost every night. It was incredible. Um, but after that long, you just get pretty down. You're lacking a lot of vitamin D and you get quite depressed. And I was really struggling to sleep. I couldn't never get to sleep before at uh, 12.30 in the morning. It was hopeless. Couldn't. Um, yeah, so then you start to see the sun on the top of the mountains and then you see it on more of the mountains. And then we had this massive mountain in the way to the south so we, the sun was never going to get to us. And then I think remember one day we, we drove up onto the north of Norway to, up to the Finnmarksveda, which is just this rolling plateau, quite flat. Um, and we had all the dogs out on the chain and we're just making breakfast for the dogs and then suddenly we turn around and there's the sun and imagine there's like um, 80 centimeters of beautiful puffy powder snow just covering every tree and every dog kennel and every building in this whole place that you can see and just looking off into the distance no um, away from the civilization and there's frozen lakes and everything and then there's the sun so it was just the most like every little bit of snow just sparkled in that moment. And I think you put a photo on of leaping for joy at the sight of it. Yeah, exactly, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we needed that by that point. Yeah. <laughs> Things were getting pretty grim after three months of no, of no sun. No snow as well. We had so little snow that winter, so you couldn't just go ski or something like you might normally do in the dark. Um, 
you could go and ice skate a couple of times. That was all. Yeah, so when we saw the sun, that was amazing. Sounds like some of the kayak and skiing adventures in the middle of the night were unbelievable as well. <laughs> um, just read out something that you wrote. We reached the top. This is the top of a mountain at 11 p.m., and as we skied back down the 40-degree slopes, the sun bathed the snow in soft orange light. Far below us, a fjord was the deepest, darkest aquamarine I've ever seen, and the sun skimmed along the northern horizon, kissing the sea before slowly rising into the morning sky. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, and that was the first day the sun didn't set of, uh, of my summer in Norway. That was in... Um... Would have been May, end of May or something. So it's quite, or beginning of May, and there's still a lot of snow. It's definitely a very long winter up there. It's quite a short summer, about three months. Winter kind of stretches, you know, six, seven to eight months. We live in a society now that seems to value um, having things rather than experiences, um, and you only need to, you know, look at the amount of presents that kids get in their birthdays, hundreds of presents, and they've got no idea what we're getting or what they're getting. What are the benefits for people of having experiences in life rather than material possessions? Yeah, you definitely learn what you need and don't need. I think a great example of this and obtainable for anyone um, is... The, the first time, say you get to 18, 19 or 20 or something and you go off on your big OE and you get this massive backpack and this second backpack that you carry and you just shove every single thing that you think you need into it. And I remember my first time doing that and you're like w lugging this backpack around Europe with boots and jackets and God knows what. Things that it's quite easy to think that where you're going, they won't have all the things that you're used to. And the moment you get over there and you're carrying this backpack, like this is 25 kilograms, really heavy of all this stuff, past all these shops, whatever, with the same things that you could potentially have got on the other side of the world if you desperately needed it. Um, you really learn like what you don't need in life, what you can leave behind. And then after a couple of times of doing that, now I just travel with a carry-on bag, a couple of pairs of shorts, if it's a warm country, pants if it's cold country. Um appropriate shoes and a couple of tops and maybe a camera mm. um, and a computer. That's kind of all you need. And so you can apply that same thing when you come back and live in a, in a place. You don't have to have like um, everything. For outdoor sports, is a bit tough because you do need a few things. Like I don't do much kayaking because I have nowhere to leave a kayak. Um, but like I have some rock climbing gear and that. Um, so you definitely collect a few things for sure with time. Um, but you can stop and think about it a lot more because you realize you don't need all of that. So you don't have to buy the latest and greatest. Um, and then in the, in the same way, like if you've got something that works, that's great. Um, and this comes from living in Cordrivet. If it breaks, then you fix it rather than throw it away. Uh, most people, if it breaks, that's you just throw it away. It's like a, it's almost like a, um automatic instinct. Oh, it's broken. All right, gone. Yeah go and buy the next one on the computer, you know, it turns up two days later. Um, and cell phones is a, is a good example of that. It's, it's surprisingly easy to fix a cell phone and it's a little challenge because they look really hard to fix. So I'm always like, ah, oh, see if we can fix it. So often I, in fact, all of my phones I, that I've ever bought have all been secondhand. Um, often they're broken and you just go on 
um, go on the internet. You can find the part that you need. Usually it's a new screen. Mm. And um, if you put your phone in a frying pan, it heats up enough so you can pull it apart. <laughs> and it's scary the first time, but after that, you realize nothing's going to happen. Um, pull it apart, put the new bit back in. It's on YouTube. You can You can work out what bits you need to plug back in. It's all pretty simple. It's surprisingly simple. And then suddenly you've got like this incredibly um, expensive thousand dollar phone that you've just put two broken ones together for a hundred dollars or something. So there's a mentality that your dad's taught you yeah. living in the back of nowhere. Even if you can afford it, that is way more satisfying to yeah. fix one. To me, that's far more satisfying than, um, than actually um, just, you know, working for two weeks to pay for something one thing you mentioned about living in gorge river is not having tv and you said that kids in town who watch tv were never as creative do you still find that true now with people you've met uh yes definitely i i don't actually um compare it to tv these days but i do remember that as a kid um tv tv is it's feeding you information all the time it's a very easy source of information now we have uh, much more than TV though because we've got our phone and we've got um, computers as well constantly feeding that to us. So it's quite easy just to, to not think but still absorb um, and you can kind of become very, there's yeah. nothing happening. Yeah. <laughs> You're just absorbing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I did find as a kid uh, probably because like if you're reading a book, then you're making that in your head. You're imagining that little thing in your head. Um, your the story, and then um, you you have to make that for yourself. And yeah, definitely people a lot more creative um, if they've kind of had less of it. Um, yeah, for sure, some people can still be very creative with having used TV. I think one of the other things was um, computer games and Playstations. I I never liked computer games or playstations you, you just you use so much of your life staring at a screen and again it's all coming at you it's not you're not really like doing a whole lot a little bit in your head but there's no physical side to it mm. when you look back at where you've been what sticks with you the most is it the people you've met or the experience or the places you've been to all of those possibly the people that i've met um but remember there's some places we don't meet people so um yeah anywhere around people then it's it's always the people so if it's a, a country you're traveling to a country it's usually the people and the culture that stick with me the most um i'm not overly into history um so it's the churches or the buildings to take pictures of i don't do that um for me the next thing might be an experience so um eating the spiciest hot pot you've ever had or that could be with friends or it could also just be that experience of eating it um which can be pretty amazing or you know hiking up a mountain in the jungle it's so different it's hot sweaty compared to perhaps what you might do elsewhere um and then the experiences in the in the wild nature then it's your kind of antarctic arctic where it's that beautiful almost completely untouched nature that's probably one of the, the strongest memories and those memories that stick with you forever mm. there's one 
um, experience that you write about in the book. And I wonder if you could just read that paragraph um, of in Morocco, where you mm. stayed with a very poor family and it seemed to have a really profound effect on you. Yeah, so we were um, was traveling in Morocco and there's a family that they were living in a very simple house. Um, but often those are the people that are the warmest and the most kind, like, kindness. The, the less someone has, the more they'll give you, you know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the whole experience was really special and it made me think of home. As a child, I had lived in quite similar, a quite similar way to this family while the rest of New Zealand led much more luxurious lives with cars, nice houses, ample electricity and various technological devices to make life easier. Our life was much more comparable to that of this family in the developing world than the first world country that we lived in, i.e. New Zealand. And yet the values and skills I learned at Gorge River have helped catapult me to wherever I want to go. I feel no limitations on what I can achieve if I set my mind to it. And I want this to be an example to people in the developing and undeveloped world that doesn't matter where you come from, you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. And the, I think that is um, yeah, a very powerful quote to take out because like, I've seen people um, who want to achieve something and I've seen people who, who don't. Um, and really, it doesn't matter where you come from. If you want it, you'll make it happen. You can have everything given to you on a silver plate. If you don't want something, you won't make it happen. And you'll, you'll potentially not go very far in life. Um, often, it's the people who come from further away from the normal. They have to try the hardest, but they then go the furthest. Yeah. Do you think you were drawn to that family because of the similarities to your upbringing and way of life at Gorge River? It definitely sparked something with me for sure. It, it's it's always the same. I've been to a few different places um, where you might walk in and you know they're cooking a wood fire. That's a thing. It happens in a few places. You'll see people cooking a nice wood fire, even in the modern world. Um, that's the sort of thing where you're like. Oh, I remember this. It kind of makes you feel like at home yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And it's the same when you have to go to this family and, and you know, they're sharing everything. It's quite the sort of thing that you do. Um, like a Gorge River, if, if you know, people turn up and they, they're a bit cold or wet or something or they're hungry, then you know, there's the food in the fireplace to warm up. There's no questions asked about it. You just, of course you do it. Um, of course you open open your home. Um, to that and unfortunately yeah a lot in the modern world is people are very reserved people probably don't yeah we keep to ourselves don't yeah, we yeah a little bit like that yeah don't like to share too much and... you don't like jump at it I love mm. it if I'm at home and um, you know if you've just caught a crayfish ah oh, helicopter land there's a crayfish I don't care who it is it's much much better gift than it is to to um, eat yourself yeah why do you think there's so much interest in your family at Gorge River and the way of life there? Um, that's an interesting one because I, I, we never expected it and never um, looked for it. Dad just wanted to, to live in a place where he could live how he wanted to live and live, grow a vegetable garden and live off the land. It, it just so happened, I think, that he did it. he did it at a time when no one else wanted to do it 
So he kind of got a little bit of a head start on the off the grid movement, which it exists now. It's it's not huge, but a few people want to live like that. A few people have their different versions of living a little bit off the off the land. Um, but Dad, he already had a huge head start on it, probably twenty or thirty years. Yeah. And then in the meantime, he'd also um, had a family out there, and then raised a family. Now a lot of people go and live somewhere. Um, but maybe maybe the parents still go off and work somewhere in the modern world um, or perhaps they're just single or or a couple, they do it for a while and then move off again. Few people have kind of gone to a place so wild, stayed there persistently um, and then raised a family at the same time. And so suddenly that was there at a time when people were becoming curious about that lifestyle and the possibilities um, and it was a reasonably um, successful and obvious example it's easy you can people can go there if you're a TV company or whatever you can hire a helicopter and you'll be there it's not like an island in the middle of the ocean somewhere yeah. it's like it is actually accessible if people want it they can get there and so suddenly you kind of become that example of how you can live like that um, and then with time with a, a couple of books and and um, you know, quite a bit of media coverage, then yeah, it becomes, I guess, more of a common story. Yeah, but there was quite a lot of negative media coverage for sort of focusing on what you and your sister weren't getting um, from the modern society. Yeah, which I... which is such a shame. Um, did did that affect your parents, and did you as kids um, notice that at all, or? Um, definitely didn't affect my parents. If the if the um, screaming southwest wind almost every day of the year didn't affect them, then nothing was <laughs> going to. So they couldn't really care less. I don't think. Yeah. Um. There was I wouldn't really call it negative. There was a little bit of negative. Um. Mostly it was just kind of. I don't know. I don't know how to describe the media coverage. Like at first, when I was growing up, no one knew. No one knew what was going to happen to Robin and I. Um, no one knew what was going to happen to the kids growing up in the wilderness without TV and all this stuff. It was an unknown. So, it was, yeah, it was kind of always a little bit dramatically twisted um, in whatever way that whoever the presenter was wanted to twist it at the time. Um, and there's a great lesson on what media can do because they can do anything. Um, that was I learned that at a very young age. And then when I left home, and that was about the time when my, um, both mum and dad's books came out, Suddenly, everyone was kind of very curious about me and the lifestyle and their books and their questions at their book talks and the media around it. They're very curious about it, like kind of like a Kia would almost you know look look out of one eye at at them, not in a good way, not in a bad way, just like that's <laughs> yeah, interesting. Having a wee peek. <laughs> yeah, so suddenly it was like oh yeah, and then um, and then so moving on ten years when my book came out, suddenly, suddenly. Um, people's mindset is you know, I'm the lucky kid who grew up at Gorge River whereas before I was yeah. I was the poor kid who lived up at Gorge River first and then I was like it's a strange way to bring up a kid but, you know who are you where you come from that's interesting and then now it's like wow you're so lucky to have grown mm. up like that mm. so it's, it's been very fascinating to watch that change because it could have changed in the opposite direction or something who knows um, and it's just been yeah how, how it's <clears throat> happened and I think that um, 
that's just helped the story to grow a little bit. Yeah. And remember, it's still growing because we've only heard three of the stories. There's four of us. Yeah, I'm waiting for the fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> We're all waiting. Um, there's no pressure, though, for it. <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on my sister. <laughs> disagree with that completely. Um, yeah, we'll see. Watch this space because I, I think it will happen. I think it will. Cool. Yeah, in the next couple of years. Fingers crossed. And maybe the girl from Gorge River. Um, I don't think she'll be able to change that name. I think it will stick after the boy from Gorge River. It'd be hard for her to not have the girl from Gorge River. So I think it'll happen. Hmm. Is it possible to be completely self-sufficient at a place like Gorge River? I mean, you guys went weeks, months without food from the outside. Mm. But reading some of your stories about what you had to eat and the tough times when you were running out was pretty tough. Yeah, it's yes, it's possible to be self-sufficient, uh, but it's very difficult. And it, it all depends on how much effort you want to put into it. Yeah, um, You can be self-sufficient. Uh, you can easily be mostly self-sufficient. And that's, that's what I encourage. It's like, um, say New Zealand at the moment, if you want 100% renewable, it's, it's an energy. It's incredibly hard to get the last 10%. It's like if you want to be um, self-sufficient, it's very hard to make the oil that you cook your fish with or the, um, in our case, flour that you might um, batter the fish with. And so it's quite easy to get the fish and the vegetables and, and that. Or in fact, it's a lot of work, but you can do it, especially if you're in a, a world where maybe you're not focusing on money so much. Suddenly you have a lot more time to, yeah. to fish and, and um, grow and work your land. Um, so if you're trying to do that at the same time as a full-time job, that's very hard. Um, uh, but yeah, it's incredibly hard to get that every last little bit of food from environment. But you can. It is food to eat. <clears throat> it's just a matter of what you're, what you are happy to put up with. Yeah, yeah. Which makes you know you never think about this, but when you think of the Maori and the settlers, um, exactly. They did it, they but did it. they must have had a tough life, eh? They did. And again, they weren't going off and doing a nine-to-five job. Mm. That was their nine-to-five job. Their their six o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock job was to you know work the land enough to, um, to get something back from or <clears throat> um, yeah, collect enough food and then potentially... If you're in a place which is really seasonal, then also save the food. You have to make it all in summer, mm. save it for winter, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating kind of lifestyle. And it, it's it's so rewarding because you know, we all go and, in the modern world, work very hard um, to make 100 bucks to go and buy some vegetables to eat and then take it home and you feed your family or whatever. Um, but you, it worked just as hard to grow hundred dollars of vegetables but you never see the dollars you just see the vegetables yeah well you tell a story and i compared it in my mind to like you say me working in a day to earn a hundred dollars which is survival um but you tell a story of i think in the winter time when you're a bit low on food and your dad would be up before daylight mm. out trying to catch some fish um all day just trying to get a few fish for the meal for dinner that night and in, in a sense, it's like me going to work for each day, but in a sense, it's actual survival, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And the difference there is you, uh, we didn't have a freezer. A freezer, could, you could have the same, you could call it your bank of your money. Um, so if you've got enough money, 
in your bank, then you don't have to work tomorrow because you can still eat. If you have a freezer, then maybe you don't need to eat tomorrow because the five fish you caught today, you can save half for tomorrow. Um, we didn't really have that. So it was a lot more um, just trying to straight from the environment to, to our mouths. Um, so we could keep fish for a couple of days, but that, that was it. And so, and vegetables are great because they're growing, they're sitting in the garden, and then you can pick them. Um, we don't get many frosts down there, so the garden tends to stay quite well through winter. It won't grow through winter, but it'll, if the silverbeet grows in summer, it'll still be alive through the winter, so you can still pick it. Um, whereas, yeah, off in the modern world, then you, you work heaps, and then so that you can um, still buy your food or whatever when you need to but yeah what were some of the foods that you would eat regularly that we would screw our faces up in a modern society uh probably uh, most of the food we ate was pretty good like the most healthy vegetables you could have um and the freshest fish and the crayfish and the power or whatever um the only things where we in the very early days we'd eat a bit of seaweed um, a kelp, bull kelp, and what was another one? Sedge grass seeds. It grew along the airstrip. These sedge grasses are about that high. They have like this little seed which sits on the top, which when you grind that, um, especially if you can mix it, you know, 50-50 with a bit of normal flour, it actually comes out quite quite nice. It's a very nutty, um, nutty kind of flour that you'd then, now you'd probably pay a lot of money for that, um, for some, for a gluten-free yeah, yeah. sedge grass seed bread. Um, yeah, so that was something different and it wasn't, sometimes it was more about going without as well. Maybe we would have uh, butter and sugar and flour and eggs, but then as the time went by and perhaps we'd have a food supply drop every six weeks, um, but you'd have those things for the first two weeks and then, and then something else would run out after three weeks. So, and then after four weeks, something else would run out. So if you're like, oh, that's the last butter. Okay, that's fine. Um, you just have two weeks without butter. Whereas in the outside world, there's a, a huge tendency to always have it. So it should always be there. Yeah, straight okay. down to the supermarket. And, exactly. And that's and... where seasons come into it because um, food is, is seasonal usually. Even in the modern world, food production is seasonal. So then suddenly we want to eat, eat um, apples in uh, October, but so then you're probably going to have to ship some fresh ones over from the other side of the world. Some things last, but then some things don't. Um, so that's, in a, yeah, I see that a lot. Like people, they, they have to have their avocado for breakfast. Montreca mm. like in May, I don't see any avocados <laughs> under $4 at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Why would you bother, you know? But mm. some people have to have it. You don't have to have it. You can go without for a little bit. Which... Um comes to a slightly different subject from being self-sufficient and that's being or living sustainably um, so just to quote you again from the book I was in a world far removed from the modern one this is as a child where kids would be getting playstations desktop computers xboxes cell phones tvs and eventually iphones by following my parents every move through this part of my upbringing I absorbed fundamental principles of resourcefulness and sustainability that would form the foundation of my own personal philosophies. These ideas grew within me and I still carry them with me today. How do you practice those ideas today? Sustainable living. You've talked about um, fixing cell phones. 
Yeah, sustainable living is a tough one because a lot of the modern world is not very sustainable. And if you're a part of the modern world, it's very difficult to be. Um, and even though we there's a lot of talk about it, we're still incredibly wasteful, aren't we? Yeah, I, I don't have a huge amount of hope. Um, partly because usually humans' solution is to... to um, it's not to go without. The, the most sustainable way is to, to go without all the um, crazy modern conveniences really um, but it, cause as soon as you you, you increase the government's um, or a country's um, economic growth so that you can then afford the the more sustainable power option or something but it doesn't really it just means that the world speeds up and up and up more and more like just look at look at even my um, short lifetime of thirty one years. When I uh, was born, cassette tapes were the thing, and now you've got iPhones. It's no time that you're using an iPhone will ever be as sustainable as probably that cassette tape with two little double A batteries, you know. And um, so it's it's incredibly hard to be honest to be in the modern world and not and be very sustainable. I think um, with that's with the world's population as it is i think if the world's population continues to grow i don't think the world can ever be sustainable um i think it's a bit of a one-way trip um yeah so things that you can do a sailing is a great one if you want to go on an adventure around the world sailing is a very good way to um to just kind of drift around the world and you do it at the speed of the wind and <laughs> And a lot of people, you know, they, you got to get there, got to get there by this time. But sailing's great. You just get on there, and you get there when you when you get there, um, and not not before. Um, other things, um, I did have the opportunity to grow a vegetable garden, which was really nice last year down in Wanaka. That was very satisfying to just for the first time be able to stop long enough to grow a vegetable garden. And make your own food, and I, I just struggled to understand how more people don't do that. You know, yeah. we love to grow grass. Grass is like the most useless thing you can grow. It looks nice, um, but if you put a little bit of effort into growing something else, then it produces food back at you. And like, look at the cost of living in New Zealand at the moment; it's crazy. It's so but, true. I mean, but if you're growing, it's almost free to grow. It's not free, but it's pretty cheap to grow a lot of things in your garden. You just have to put a little bit of effort into it, but it's satisfying as well. It's so satisfying to you watch it grow. You come up, maybe even take a photo of it. Three months later, you're like, wow, that's crazy. You'll see the change and that'll make you feel really happy. You go out, you um, you pick your zucchinis. If there's one thing you're going to grow, just grow zucchinis because they'll produce so much <laughs> zucchinis. Um, and yeah, how satisfying is it? It's all you did was buy a few seeds and if you're smart you don't even need to buy fertilizer either because you should be composting everything that should be your your year's waste should be your fertilizer for next year this is stuff kids just aren't taught at taught in schools i Pretty mean much. we know some um young people that uh lived in a rental property we have and this rental property had amazing vegetable gardens apple trees rhubarb the whole lot there and None of it was eaten, and mm. they said, "Oh no, we just eat freeze-dried food. We wouldn't know how to cook anything fresh." But 
it's just it's crazy you know and then the supermarket costs like you say are out of control and um, the whole composting issue um, the benefits of it you know mm, exactly it's crazy um, as a country New Zealand's pretty lucky with renewable electricity um, overseas many places don't have that um, the for us down at Gorge River we have solar panels and uh, that's to me is one of the better renewable um, power sources you do still have to make a panel so you should never ever call it 100% renewable because it's not um, however they are if you are going to build something they are a very low maintenance option um, and you put them on the roof so it's very unintrusive and the other advantage of that is you're not transporting the electricity anywhere it's not like we're sending it from New South Island to North Island solar panels on your roof and you tend to use most of it yourself in your house so it kind of takes away a little bit of that extra infrastructure you need um, and the other one is solar hot water as well yeah if everyone had a solar hot water heater on their roof um, it would save a huge amount of the electricity that we have to kind of be moving around all the time which is common in a lot of countries isn't it it is common in some countries not as much as you would think though there's definitely some places but um, yeah, that's one. That's one technology which I think could quite easily be expanded a lot. Did you ever eat possum at home? Yeah, I've eaten possum a couple of times. I didn't really like it so much. Um, it's a perfectly fine meat. I just didn't really. Yeah, once you've hunted a few possums, it's kind of the last thing I wanted to do was eat it. Uh, Dad and and Mum they they eat quite a lot actually. Okay. Yeah, over the years after I left home, um, then they quite often ate possum. Talking about leaving home, um, it seems like it was quite traumatic for you. We just mentioned this earlier. For most of us, it's a big thing leaving home, but you were um, so isolated and moving to the normal world, I guess. Um, did you feel like you were abandoning your parents' principles of living um, away from out of society and... Um, doing something different mm, a bit different to that and uh, it wasn't traumatic it was um it was a tough decision to make it was the hardest decision i've ever made but it was the most exciting decision as well like half of me was like this is going to be incredible the other half was a little bit reserved like do i want to um do i do i know how to survive i kind of had I knew I would work it out, um, but I just didn't know if I wanted to let go of that because, of, of course, I could always come back, but I figured I probably wouldn't as well. I figured that once I left, then it was, I kind of was letting go a lot. Um, that was probably the hardest part about it. And then the other part was, it was so exciting, and I really was like, that was the first step on a, a journey, which I didn't know was going to happen, but I figured that something would happen. Um, I didn't know where that would take me, but it didn't take me very long, probably a week or two in, at school in Wanaka, and I knew that I'd make the right decision, and I knew that I was going to already t take steps further than I kind of imagined that I might before I'd left home. Mm. It must have been incredibly hard for your parents, and your dad wrote a really nice paragraph in his book, um, which I'll just read out. Watching him, that's you, fly away each each time was something else. 
As the aircraft slowly disappeared in the distance, the wind gusts buffeting my eardrums would meld with the salt of my tears. Our young falcon had flown again. Now at the dawning of his new life, he's pursuing his own dreams. They may differ from mine, but I have every confidence he will make a success of them. He writes mm. really well. Um, and just on that note, I have two more paragraphs, one out of your dad's book and one out of your mum's book. Um which I just wanted to, to put in here because they're, they're beautiful. So again from your father, and he was talking about a dream that he had for um, you and your sister as you were very young. I always saw our children, or in that dream I always saw our children walking along the beach for mile upon endless mile to reach town as a family travelling together through the vast untamed wilderness, not by vehicle but on foot. What individual, what individuals these children would grow up to be, what sheer determination and survival skills they would develop. Surely they would be an asset to all of us in today's world. And I can just see his, his vision, you know, all those many years back. What an mm. amazing experiment. I mean, where else do you, if you want to break it down into the cold, raw reality, where else do you get to try this sort of experiment where you raise a family um, in this amazing environment, teach them all the skills to survive. Mm. Yeah, well, back then it was a place no one wanted to be down there. Still, very few people want to go and live down there. But, um, you know, he he literally went somewhere no one wanted to be. The house was, was abandoned. Yeah. You know, someone, someone had a, a lease on it, but you know, it wasn't being used overly much. Um, the the guy who built it went bankrupt. He was crayfishing, didn't catch enough crayfish, crashed too many aeroplanes, lost his boat, went bankrupt eventually. He couldn't survive in that environment. No one wanted to be there. If you go to a place like Haast in winter back then, no one wanted to be in Haast. Suddenly one day everyone bought all the houses in Haast as holiday homes and everyone, they wanted to go back to that environment. <laughs> and I've seen it in a few different countries. Like Morocco was it was one currently in morocco like a lot of people or before everyone lived in the countryside and now they're at that stage in life where everyone's moving towards the cities that's the cool thing and i guarantee in like 10 or 20 or 30 years suddenly you'll start seeing people go hiking again like yeah, yeah. you're going back out to there even if you didn't live there but you're going back out to experience the wilderness or the countryside and i think new zealand was probably going through a similar kind of process at that stage, no one wanted to go to those kind of really isolated places. Um, and then, so yeah, dad turned up there and he was prepared to live somewhere that no one else wanted to be. Just And live a, a really changes. simple life that you have to do to be that out there. no one wanted to live, yeah. yeah. Um, and then just a quote from your mum's book, which I love this paragraph. Um, and they write so nicely, your parents. There's an enormous pride in watching them, that's kids, fly away. Like an, like the archer, you can draw the arrow, aim carefully, do everything within your ability to send it straight. But once it's released, there's nothing more you can do but watch to see how it flies and accept with pride or disillusionment the results of your effort. And as a parent, you know, I completely sympathize and understand what, what she's writing. Mm. Um, it's, it's so true. Anyway, um, if we could just have a quick discussion about risk. We just started off and, and risk versus reward. Um, and what made me think about this was your um, 
hike up to the top of Mitre Peak mm. um, and you nearly got hit by a boulder. But the reward and the feeling of satisfaction at the end was incredible. Um, what is about what is it about taking calculated risk that makes the successful outcome just so much sweeter? Well, you push yourself um you push yourself sometimes further than you ever thought you could. And when you when you push your comfort zone, um everyone has a little bubble that they live in and then just outside that bubble is kind of their just beyond their comfort zone and then you go a bit further and you're like really pushing your comfort zone. Um, but then afterwards, that bubble will never ever go back to the same size as it was. So you're constantly kind of growing that bubble. And so there's so much to be learned when you're in that kind of place where you're outside of your comfort zone but you still haven't pushed it so far that you've fallen off the mountain and killed yourself. Um, and there's so much to be, to, to be learned about yourself and the environment and people or the people around you, your, your mates that you're out there with, whoever it is, the people you're guiding. Um, you learn so much in that moment. It's kind of experiential learning. Um, and so, yeah, you can do it yourself. I've done that a lot myself. I, I love to go and push my limits, whether it be hiking along a, a mountain ridge top in um, Norway or Mitre Peak, like you said. That was a reasonably dangerous version of it. Um, you're living on the edge in, in that moment and you learn how to make those decisions of um, do, do I step there, do I not? That's That can be a life or death decision. Do I step there, do I run, do I slow down? Um, do you... Do you continue on? In fact, the, the biggest decision you can ever make in the outdoors, and this is a, as a pilot or a guide or a skier, anything, is that um, the decision to turn around before you got to where you wanted to. And it's the hardest decision you'll ever make. Um, let's say you're flying through the mountains and you come to a, a mountain pass and it's 50-50 whether you're going to make it through it, make your way through it or not safely. Um, or you're climbing up in a mountain and there's avalanche danger and it could be quite dangerous, making that decision to turn around at that moment um, is the hardest decision to make. It's the best decision you'll ever make. And as soon as you're back on the ground or back home, you'll say, oh my God, I did it. Thank yeah. God I did that. You know, it's, you'll always be so thankful you did that in that moment. And otherwise is the time when you didn't do it and you push yourself, you push yourself perhaps a bit too far, you got a little bit lucky and you made it and then you're like, I should not have done that. That's the worst feeling. Yeah, and and you mentioned an um, experience you had free diving at Gorge River, was it? Yeah. Where I think you were quite new to it, you pushed things too hard, which is probably exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I was just young and I was um, had got a, bit better uh, wetsuit and and freediving equipment so I was just pushing my limits a little bit further ended up in a situation where I was trying to retrieve something from the bottom a little bit deeper than I'd ever dived before and so there's a few things adding up that were just kind of going against me um, and I pushed my limit too far and I didn't um, I didn't pass out and I didn't uh, blow my eardrums but I must have been quite close to either of those if I'd passed out then I would have died um, at 14 meters under the water and so, 
yeah, in that moment, I realized I'd pushed it too far. Afterwards, I realized I'd pushed it too far. I was incredibly annoyed at myself for doing that. Um, and But I survived. And so, I learned from that. Mm. I learned a lot from that. And and now, you know, that experience along with others is in the back of your head when, when you're, you know, um, leading a group of 80 people into Antarctica somewhere and you're trying to land on a beach and you can't today and you got to tell those people we can't do it today and you just paid $50,000 and we can't take you where you want to go. But it's those kind of things that you, um, all those experiences that you pull together to, yeah. to work out if you can do it because often you can do it but work out that day where you can't and that is the best decision you'll ever make. So just um, talking about risk, the whole balance of being protected from it, you know, mm. to be safe, but needing to experience it to understand it is is interesting, isn't it? And you wrote a great paragraph about this in your book. If you could just read that out, yeah, things go in extremes, and I think at the moment we we're going very far towards the extreme of of wrapping people in cotton wool, which is the opposite to how I grew up. So mm. I guess that's why I come come at that um, kind of health and safety kind of mindset. I come at it from the completely 180 degrees to what most do um yeah so as a child in the wilderness around gorge river i was never sheltered from risk and had learned to recognize the fine line between life and death after climbing mitre peak and experiencing risk at a more extreme level for most of a day as well as very close as well as a very close shave from a falling rock i discovered that other dangers in life were clearer to me i continued to build on this understanding since and firmly believe that when you find uh, fully appreciate the surrounding risks, you can manage them accordingly and be much safer. I don't know, I didn't know it then, but that wouldn't be my last close shave. Experiencing something is the best way to learn, and in this modern world where people are sheltered from risk, how can they ever get the opportunity to build this critical knowledge base? Instead, they learn to fear risk, Things are dangerous. We're scared of it rather than striving to understand it. Eventually, everyone is faced with a dangerous situation. And if they aren't familiar with the sensation and can't identify the dangerous, the dangers, then how will they ever act in the safest way in that moment? As successive generations are wrapped more and more in cotton wool, human beings are losing this knowledge I'm forever grateful that I was able to learn to manage risk rather than fear it from my own early experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's just 100% true. And I agree with you. In today's society, we've gone too far. Things go in waves. You know, mm. everyone goes so far one way, then they realize that no one understands things anymore. And then it might come back a little bit. I hope. Um, I hope. <laughs> we'll see. I think what we'll it what goes. it's going to take is people like you and me and others of a similar um, thought process to not be afraid to speak up and say, "Look, we need to push back a wee bit." You know, yeah, we need to get rid of some road cones. They're just making things worse. You know, exactly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And unless individuals actually stand up and say, "This ain't cool," well, it's not going to change. Yeah. You got to think to learn, and we're we're rapidly uh, teaching people not to think anymore. Unfortunately, 
think inside the box. You got to think outside the box at some stage in life. Otherwise, that box will never expand. The Kiwi number eight wire mentality is gone. You can't do a Kiwi number eight wire mentality that we're so proud of. Um, you can't do that inside the box. And I'm I'm sorry, but, but yeah, I think that's well and truly um, becoming very very hard. Mm, I agree. Yeah. Couple of last questions. How do you choose your next adventure? Where to go? Do you have in your mind now, you know, a few places that you really want to tick off, or is it just um, whatever phone call comes up tomorrow? It, I have in mind some things I would like to do and some places I would like to go, but if that phone call is is um, I wouldn't say better, but you know, more exciting, or maybe you you um, I always try to build on what I did before. And so professionally, I've done so many different jobs. My CV is about that long. Um, I've never stayed in any one job for very long. That's the weakness of that. But the strength in it is that I've done many different jobs. So you're a jack of all trades. There's few things now that you can't work out because you've done A and B, so you work out C. Um and so I've always tried to build on the last experience and whether that be, you know, get paid a bit more or a more senior position or perhaps you just, like the dog sledding was a very entry-level job but that was an amazing experience. It was worth it to be up in Norway. Um, and then, and then, yeah, with time you, you get a nice job on an expedition ship and that's, that's quite, it's a very good job to have now. Um, and so... When that call comes in, whatever it might be, or the email, or the opportunity, or the job advert, or something, you know, someone tells you about this opportunity that's happening, the ones that spark my interest are always building on my last ones, and just that extra step further, or the extra bit of responsibility, I love responsibility, or different place, or different people, culture, whatever it might be. Is the cold weather an attraction or would you go to a place in the Middle East where it's 50 degrees? <laughs> it's funny because everyone always asks me this. Most of what you'll see and most of what I talk about are cold places. Mm. That is mostly my work. And most of the time I work in cold places because um, most of my strengths are working in the colder or the more wild environments. Um, I would go to the Middle East in a heartbeat. Okay. So most of my travel, which I didn't, write about so much um, that's mostly in warm countries especially now that I have this job where I'll be going and spending six months in the Arctic and Antarctic each, each year then the other six months when I'm not on the ship I will be going to warm places I missed out on New Zealand summer this year <laughs> not doing that twice but I will do it twice but I will make up for it by going to somewhere warm in the in the um, autumn and the springtime in, instead yeah, I, I love the heat and I love the extremes, both of those. Mm. Finally, your parents are both um, highly educated and decided to have a 180 degree change in life. What does the future hold for you when you finally decide to settle down, if that time ever comes, and have children, if that ever comes? Do you think you'll follow your parents' track or will you settle down in suburbia? 
I've no idea the answer to that question, and I've I've been looking. I've been looking for the answer. I'm happy to see the answer if it comes along. Um, so far, the answer hasn't come along. I've been looking for eleven years, you could say, or even more. Um, yet to work it out. Maybe kind of go in some directions, but but you know, some people they travel for a year and they're like, oh, I want to do this, and then that's it. they've sorted it out. For me, yeah. the more I do, the more things I want to do, and the more I want to see and explore. So um, it would be very hard to stay in one place. I've kind of tried to stay in one place. Um, in Norway, I loved it, but then I had to leave because of visas. Came back here, I enjoyed staying in one place in Wanaka and then Motueka. Um, but then you know that that opportunity came along, so off I went. Um, I leave the country in three days to go to the Arctic, so um, that opportunity is continuing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to. I'd love that experience of living in a place, whether it be Gorge River or, or somewhere else, living on a piece of land or you know, growing a vegetable garden, having that kind of life where you can grow trees because you're there so long and. Mm. One day you see the fruit trees and and you look after the resources around you and and that sort of thing. I'd love it so much. Whether there's time in one lifetime to do all of that, I don't know. We'll Maybe see. one day you'll wake up and just say, "I want to stay in one. I want to settle down." It's entirely possible. I do get a little bit annoyed. Right today, I was packing up everything into my van to leave here in New Zealand. It's a little bit annoying, but I'm also so used to it. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, you just throw that in there and that in there and clean up and then you're gone. And there's some freedom in just putting on that backpack and, and going as well. Um, it's it's kind of nice having a job um, that I plan now to do this particular expedition guiding job for some years. Um, and it's it's set. They book your flights from where you, wherever you want to go, take you back to wherever you want to go. Um you're paid when you're there, you're working hard, but then you've got time off at the end of it. So that's kind of nice because it's a structured way of living. A, it's a form of like stability. Structured life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. For me, that's very structured. Mm. I kind of like that. I definitely am at the stage now where it's nice if someone, if you have a boss and they just send you the itinerary, okay, don't have to think about it. That's nice. So maybe one day, mm. maybe, maybe one <laughs> we'll day watch we'll this be, space. <laughs> we'll be living somewhere. Probably not quite as long as dad has, but <laughs> anyway, thanks very much for um, making the time in your busy schedule to talk to me. I appreciate it. And um, everything you've written <clears throat> and put on um, YouTube and Instagram, I'm sure it's a um, great inspiration to a lot of people to get out there and give life a go. And, and you can do anything if you want to, can't you? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. And that's what I'm here for. I, I um if I can inspire someone from from this program from writing the book whatever it is um, I'm quite happy to tell my story I don't need to tell it but I, I enjoy telling it but the best thing about it is that chance to inspire someone somewhere to make a difference and whether that be sit down and write their own story that'd be cool um, whether it be you know you go down and and you um, make a compost heap and then next year you'll grow a vegetable garden and the soil you just produce mm. great mm. It, whether you live in a fifty five story apartment in New York City and you go and buy a little um, bag of potting mix from from Mitre Ten easiest garden you can ever make six lettuces and a bag of potting mix fifty floors up if that's what they do awesome um, I'm so supportive in just anything and and 
it doesn't have to be like going off and live in the middle of the wilderness for 40 years like that. No, and I think that's that's a really good point. I mean, it's easy to look at what you do and go, oh, I've got a family and a house and I can't go and do what he does. But, you know, there's the tiniest little things, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, you like can grow you say, a garden like, and go camping. On start your a worm farm or something. Or, yeah. Yeah. There's every little bit is, is you know, a start. Mm. And mm. It maybe it just helps. It makes you feel nice and calm and satisfied at the end of the day you know and you're doing your bit for the world exactly yeah Mm. so if i can inspire people to do that great um and it makes it all worth it Mm. so thank you very much cool thank you very much